children for a whole week. And she's a PhD candidate there, supervised by Kim and Ryan and uh, uh, Andrew Bailey. And she's currently researching Shakespearean anthropology and um, her secondary interests in Japanese translations of Shakespeare. I'd first like to thank the organizers for this opportunity and for arranging an event with such a relevant topic because it really does strike me how interested Shakespeare is with liminal spaces. You could think of the threshold between the play and real life or the threshold between fantasy and reality, the spatial threshold between forest and civilization in plays like A Midsummer Night's Dream or Timon of Athens, or even more metaphysical thresholds like the threshold between the world of the fairies and the world of the human in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And of course, of all of the things that everyone has been talking about today, all of these thresholds. So the topics are pretty much endless. You could have a conference like this every week, I'm sure, and we'll still have speakers. But thresholds, liminality, borderlines, boundaries, the demarcation of many of these things can be sketchy. Where does the candle end and the flame begin? Where do I end and you begin? Where does life end and death begin? The threshold of a building can be a literal stone or a piece of wood that marks the entrance, the boundary point between two spaces. The threshold in an experimental situation is the point at which a reaction starts to have an effect. With metaphysical situations, it's often harder to define where one state ends and the other begins. When is something just or unjust? How do we know? Presumably, a liminal or threshold moment would capture the moment between these two states. But of the threshold moments and liminal spaces in Shakespeare's plays, what interests me most is the threshold between being and not being, because it's something that Shakespeare dwells on particularly in his plays. Just think of all of the instances that involve suicide or a temporary death-like state. Shakespeare even suggests that being itself is a threshold between two states of non-being in Prospero's famous lines from The Tempest. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. It is life that is the anomaly. Non-being is the more usual state of things. If this is the case, then everything that Shakespeare presents as living is in a threshold between being and non-being. The moment between life and death might even be a threshold of a threshold. With life and death, the threshold is both physical and metaphysical. I know when one is dead and one, when one lives, says Lear, when Cordelia dies. It is obvious when somebody is dead physically, but partly because he's not quite in his right mind, Lear is certain and yet uncertain, checking for signs of life in Cordelia over and over again, saying, if that her breath will mist or stain the stone, why then she lives. And again, the feather stirs, she lives. She might be at the threshold of death, she might have crossed it. Though we know when someone has died, it's hard to say when the exact moment is that somebody dies. And when does the metaphysical element of what makes someone what they are cease to be? This threshold between life and death is made painfully clear, I think, in Antony's botched suicide in Antony and Cleopatra. He fails to die by falling on his sword. How? Not dead? Not dead? The guard? Ho! Oh, oh, dispatch me! A threshold is a point at which a reaction occurs, when the qualitative state of something changes. Antony, in this case, fails him, fails to take himself to the threshold where his state will change from living to dead. 
Unlike many of the things that we do, death is not ultimately within our will to command. One can do an awful lot to try and cross the threshold of death, but we do, we do not do death to ourselves. It is not within our control. Death comes to us. Suicide may seem like one of the ultimate acts of self-will or taking charge of our own lives, dignity and destiny, but it relies on something that isn't within our ability to control. At some point, on the threshold of death, one stops being an agent of one's own actions. Antony clearly thinks otherwise. Before his failed suicide, he says, I will be a bridegroom in my death and run into it as to a lover's bed. In this image, the volition is entirely on his side. Death is something passive, like the traditionally subservient female, uh, something he runs to and embraces, even sexually. Even after he fails to kill himself, Antony's idea of himself doesn't change. He claims, Not Caesar's valour hath overthrown Antony, but Antony's hath triumphed, triumphed on itself. And again, he refers to himself as a Roman by a Roman valiantly vanquished. Of course, he has done himself in. He does die of the wound that he made, and nobody finishes himself, him off despite his initial pathetic plea. Nevertheless, the play shows him less in control of his own death than he might like to believe. Like Cleopatra, death isn't just going to lie there patiently and receive Antony in his passion. He would like to think of himself as running over the threshold into death, but he's pulled over slowly instead. Cleopatra gives lie to his assertion of self-control by asking, Noblest of men would die? Hast thou no care of me? For if Antony had power over his life or death, he would be able to stop death from taking him, but he cannot. In the end, he doesn't die uttering famous last words or valiantly like a hero, but while Cleopatra is talking in the middle of her speech. In contrast to Antony, Cleopatra proclaims her suicide by saying, What's brave, what's noble, let's do it after the high Roman fashion and make death proud to take us. She doesn't directly state that she's going to kill herself. She's going to let death take her. She will take herself to the threshold and let death take her over the edge. Her desire for death is always framed in this particular way. Where art thou, death? Come hither, come. Come, come and take a queen worth many babes and beggars. As she says in Act 5, suicide is that thing that ends other deeds. It is the moment that one gives up the ability to act. It is only an action up to the point it ceases to be an action done by someone because that someone ceases to be. This uncontrollability of the transition from life to death is one of the things that haunts Hamlet in his to be or not to be soliloquy on a theoretical level. Hamlet can only think about what it means not to be as a negation of what is. Not to be is to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. It is the ending of what is. Hamlet imagines acting to end what is, but he cannot go beyond it, beyond it into what is not. It is a threshold he cannot cross in his mind. In an attempt to describe the state after his act of ending what is, Hamlet equates to die with to sleep no more. But trying to cross the threshold of death in his imagination, he ends up drawing on familiar states of being, in this case sleep. His is a description of death from the outside, you might say. 
because it's to the living onlooker that the dead look like they're sleeping. And thinking about sleep is the closest Hamlet can get to imagining himself in that state. He goes on, to die, to sleep, perchance to dream. His imagination stretches into the afterlife, to being after death. As Brian Cummings says, it is the continuation of existence after death that is the most frightening possibility. Non-existence is the release, the dissolution of the body from its torments of being. Hamlet cannot escape from existence and all that entails, even in his conception of death. Ultimately, Hamlet can't imagine himself in a state of non-being. The threshold between life and death can't be crossed in his mind, because the moment when he might understand non-being is the moment when he would cease to be able to understand anything. But being who he is, Hamlet can't imagine himself becoming something he's not. But life and death is a rather limited notion of being and non-being. From the perspective of the one dying, death is the end of, the, uh, end of being, the transition from being to non-being. But for those who are left behind by the dead, there is still a sort of being in death. For King Lear, Cordelia's dead body is still Cordelia in some way. She has not suddenly stopped existing, yet she is not exactly what she was. Death is the moment when something ceases to be what makes it what it is. The dead Cordelia has existence in some form, but she is not meaningful as everything that made her Cordelia. This is especially noticeable in the case of plays like Romeo and Juliet or Cymbeline, where, the char- where a character goes into a temporary state of death, where they are anything but lacking in meaning, since the plot depends on the device. The significance of the living person comes into perspective most of all when they have died, because the moment they lose the meaning they had is the moment their meaning becomes most apparent. So what is being? Being is something like meaningful presence, and non-being is the lack of any kind of manifestation, lack of presence. So non-being is similar but not the same as death. It's more akin to not having been born, because the only way to think about non-being, as Hamlet's soliloquy shows, is as a negation of being. A useful mediating point between being and non-being might be the idea of nothing, as Shakespeare uses the term, which is as neither being nor non-being, a kind of threshold space between the two, though naturally closer to being than non-being. If being is meaningful presence and non-being is the lack of presence, then nothing is non-meaningful presence or meaningful lack of presence. To put this more concretely, the dead have a sort of being even after death because their dead bodies still have a physical presence. But they are not meaningful in the way that living beings are. In contrast, those who no longer live but who are remembered have a sort of being involved in memory, a meaningful lack of presence. One can have being and not be a thing. This is no doubt one of the reasons that Hamlet is so obsessed with remembrance and memory, both for himself and his father. The king is a thing of nothing. In this sense, because, as Cantararitz has shown in The King's Two Bodies, The king, as physical body, can die, but the meaningful being of what it is to be king continues and is embodied by another person. The king is nothing in the sense that it is not a thing, even though the physical body of the monarch is a thing. 
the king is dead, long live the king. One way of thinking about nothing is by using the number zero, as you know, which was a newly discovered concept for the Elizabethans and one that Shakespeare dwells on. The zero denotes nothingness, but it exists insofar as it's a manipulable symbol instead of something that doesn't exist at all. As the fool says to King Lear, thou art an O without a figure. I am better than thou art now. I am a fool, thou art nothing. Nothing is the cipher, the zero, which denotes the threshold between being and non-being, though necessarily closer to being in that it is conceivable. Cummings says that when Hamlet says death is a consummation devoutly to be wished, he is thinking of what Richard II is thinking in his final soliloquy, being nothing. But actually, Shakespeare uses nothing in several distinct ways, and not all of these refer to death. For instance, when Lysander says, less than an ace for him, for he is dead, he is nothing, in A Midsummer Night's Dream, he obviously means nothing as in death. But most of the time, nothing is used by characters who are, used of characters who are clearly still alive. When the fool calls Lear nothing, he certainly doesn't mean that Lear has no being or Lear is dead. The same goes for Edgar's famous declaration, Edgar, I nothing am. Richard II's I, no I, for I must nothing be. And the end of Coriolanus, when Cominius says, Coriolanus he would not answer to, forbade all names. He was a kind of nothing, titleless, till he had forged himself a name of the fire of burning Rome. In these instances, nothing is not death. It is more like a state of meaninglessness, presence without significance. It's closer to the kind of nothing that a dead body is because these characters are present. They have been, but they have ceased to be what made them what they were. This is especially clear in Richard II's case because his nothing is the loss of kingship that defined him and the lack of any other way of understanding himself that would make his existence meaningful again. Being is always being something. So to be nothing contradicts one's essence. But by navigating this threshold space of being and non-being, Shakespeare exposes what it means to be something to make sense. So when Richard II says, nor I nor any man that but man is, with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing, he shows that being something is the normal state of things. But that this fact is only noticeable when one is nothing. It takes the suspension of meaning for one to realize that meaning was there to begin with. This is why Richard feels he needs to be eased with being nothing. Meaning becomes more meaningful in the light of nothingness, in light of the threshold between being and non-being. The concept of nothing brings me to my next point, because life is not the only thing that can be meaningfully present. For an actor, for instance, meaningful presence as a character depends on the framework of the play. It would be reductive to say that characters don't have any kind of being, because characters in plays have a sort of being that isn't identical to the being of the actor. A soliloquy, you might say, teeters on the threshold of this kind of being because the actor navigates the fine line between being part of the play and being with the audience. It's no wonder, then, that Hamlet, occupying this threshold space in his soliloquy, discusses the threshold between being and non-being. Because soliloquy is between the being and non-being of a character, just as suicide navigates the threshold between life and death. 
The physical presence of the character in a threshold space belongs to the actor rather than to the character, so that the character is a kind of nothing, a meaningful lack of presence. This is certainly the status that characters occupy in written text, where they share the same kind of existence as other fictional characters or memories of people who are no longer present. These beings are nothing. They are not things, but they are beings. And in that sense, all storytelling exists in this liminal space between being and not being, in this space of nothingness. Hamlet touches on this when he's reflecting on the player's lament for Hecuba. And all for nothing? For Hecuba? What's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her? Hecuba is nothing. For the actor, Hecuba has no real-life meaning, nor does the actor have any meaning to the fictional Hecuba, and yet... Through the player's acting and through the act of storytelling, Hecuba comes to mean something. She becomes meaningful nothing. Shakespeare plays with this liminal space of being in many of his plays, especially in plays such as Troilus and Cressida, Antony and Cleopatra, even A Midsummer Night's Dream, and many of the history plays, where the protagonists are often not only fictional characters, but characters of legend. They have an existence outside of the world of the play, even if they are not physically in being. Shakespeare especially highlights this in Troilus and Cressida in the self-reflexive moment when the characters swear that they will be faithful by the future meaning of their names. Let all constant men be Troiluses, all false women Cressids, and all brokers between pandas. Even outside of the play, without the physical being of the people, these characters have a sort of being, in that they mean something. They are nothings, but meaningful nothings. By bringing into focus the contemporary meaning of these names of the characters, Shakespeare metadramatically highlights the fictional being of the play and the cultural mythical being of the characters within the play. And he playfully blurs the threshold between the being and non-being of the characters and of the play. Theatre is special, in that it gives shapes to these nothings. It exploits the threshold between being and non-being to give nothing a temporary physical manifestation similar to the way poetry does in the lines Shakespeare puts into Theseus's mouth in A Midsummer Night's Dream. The poet's pen gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. The substance of theatre is itself a kind of nothing because it is the manifestation of meaningful nothing that differentiates play from audience. Nothings are brought into being in the wooden O, a space of nothing, and temporarily turned into things. Theatre is like a dream, which is meaningful nothingness, a comparison Puck draws in his apology at the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream. If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. The being of a play and the characters are temporary, tied to a particular place and a particular duration, outside of which it is nothing, not a thing. But plays push at the boundary of what is and what is not because they have being, or rather because they play with the distinction between what it means to be or not to be. So not only does Shakespeare highlight the threshold between being and non-being in his plays, his plays themselves exist in the threshold between being and non-being. They are inherently liminal. They can get away with subversion and offence because of their liminal nature, but they continue to have being as a sort of nothing rather than a non-being. 
I think we can safely say that one of the reasons we study literature and works of art that matter to us is because they tell us something about what we are. But Shakespeare aids the process considerably by playing with notions of what it means to be in his use of being, non-being, and nothing. Because by exploring the threshold between being and non-being, Shakespeare reveals what being is, that existence is filled with meaning and presence. Thank you very much.